My natural instinct is to be aggressive, and it doesn't always serve me well. I am a controlling personality. At one time, I opposed that characterization because it has a negative implication. But you show me a person who is not controlling, and I'll show you a person who is probably not highly successful. That is the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, reading from the book he wrote last year, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. When the book was published in October 2020, new COVID-19 cases in New York were low and his approval ratings were sky high. Since then, he's been accused by people who've worked with him and for him of leading an administration that mismanaged the pandemic response and leading a workplace that is hostile to its many young female employees. Most of the state's congressional delegation has called on him to resign, and yet he remains defiantly in place. Andrew Cuomo has been the most powerful man in New York for a decade, but it feels like many people only got to know him over the last year. First, as a reassuring leader during a period of nationwide crisis, and then as the creepy tyrant of Albany. On today's show, we're talking about Andrew Cuomo and why his incompetence and bad behavior have taken so long to catch up with him. And to what extent was that behavior hidden in plain sight? I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything. We talked first with Rebecca Traster, who wrote a deeply reported article for New York Magazine in mid-March about the recent allegations against Cuomo. And later in the show, we'll talk with Ross Barkin, who wrote a biography of Andrew Cuomo about the governor's early career working for his father. Finally, we'll talk with New York State Senator Julia Salazar about how Cuomo wields his power in state politics. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So in your recent piece, you describe a workplace in Andrew Cuomo's office that's deeply inhospitable, especially for women. Can you just take us through some of the incidents that you reported on? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that it is inhospitable in certain ways, particularly for women and also for people of color and also for people. I think it's inhospitable, (laughs) most broadly stated. The forms that that takes are really varied. Lots of people who I interviewed for this story described the ways that they were told both explicitly and implicitly that the women were to wear heels and to dress in certain kinds of tailored, attractive, and often expensive clothes, that they were to look good when the governor was around, and not just for the governor, but also for some of his top aides. There was a kind of constant culture of yelling and threatening. A lot of people who have already told their stories about how the governor treated them have noted that he used nicknames in reference to them. So his use of nicknames for younger employees, younger female employees, who he called everything from like, sweetie, and honey to sponge, or in the case of Lindsay Boylan, who wrote about her experience, she alleges that he harassed her and asked her to play strip poker and kissed her against her will. She also says that he sometimes referred to her by the name of a woman who is his rumored ex-girlfriend, who he said she resembled. Lots of people described how so much of, especially the junior staff in his offices, were women to whom it was made clear that they were there in part because of what they looked like. 
one story that you have in your article kind of sheds light on the recruitment process and the way that looks seem to have factored in. Sometimes when people are saying, oh, he hires attractive people, it can be a kind of unconscious bias. But this seemed like something much more conscious. Can you tell us about, I think it's the woman who is going by Caitlin in the article, an experience that she had. So Caitlin described to me, she had a relatively new job at a lobbying firm. She'd been there for about six weeks and she was working at a fundraiser that was hosted by her firm. It was a fundraiser for the governor. And as he was leaving, he approached her and she had had a previous job working for another politician, which she mentioned when she said hello and introduced herself. And she said that he immediately responded immediately upon meeting her at this party, sort of shaking her hand. Well, soon you'll be working again in government, this time at a state level, which made no sense to her. And then he held her in a, there was a photographer there, and this is in public, and he held her in a kind of dance move, had their picture taken together, and then moved on. And then a couple of days later, she gets a voicemail saying, we want you to come in for a job interview to work for the governor. And then she speaks to her current bosses and to some other mentors, she was 27 years old when this happened, who all convey to her the same thing, which is you've got to go take this meeting. And she describes knowing the whole time that this job offer can only be because he liked the way she looked at a party. And yet her mentors and bosses are sort of saying to her, and they're openly acknowledging this and saying, but you got to go in. He's the governor. You got to do this. So she does. Caitlin takes a job. She goes to work for the governor. When you work for the governor, uh, apparently every year there's a tradition. There's a Super Bowl party at a bar. She goes. At the end of the night at the bar, she sees something. The governor was in the back room talking to a young woman who had a dove tattoo. And the next morning at a staff meeting, he said to members of his staff, can you track down the, the woman from last night with the dove tattoo to offer her a job? She describes the very uncanny feeling of realizing that this must have been how it went down Mm -hmm. after the event where she met him. And I will also say other people I spoke to described exactly this pattern. This was not a one-time thing. He would meet uh, very often a young woman at an event and then track her down to hire her. The behavior that you describe, it sounds pervasive. It, It takes place over a number of years. Why do you think that it's taken so long for all of those examples to accrue and for people to be willing to talk to you as a reporter? Mm. I think there are a lot of reasons that it's taken so long. The first is that we have to remember that a lot of this behavior is just normalized and has been normalized for a really long time. I think that some of the stories in my piece could have been public five years ago. And in fact, many versions of them were. Mm. And no one cared. Mm. Right. Well, this was a a question I had was that in 2017, you were publishing so many stories about men who had abused their power and sexually harassed women who worked with them. What shocked me reading what Lindsay Boylan was talking about is when he asked her to play strip poker, that's in literally the same month that stories about Harvey Weinstein are coming out. It feels like a Me Too story in many ways, but it doesn't seem to have occurred to anyone or to him that this was what was going on? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. One is that I think the world is still filled with people who are engaging in all kinds of forms of sexual harassment and abuse within workplaces who think that 
there are not going to be repercussions for them. It's mysterious to me. I read about these things and I'm like, wait, did, did you not get the memo, right? But I think that one of the lessons of so many of these stories is that the sense of impunity is really tied to a sense of what power and authority mean. Mm. Andrew Cuomo is a guy who's one of his closest aides is in federal prison on corruption mm -hmm. charges. He's famous for being a bully. And, and that not only has gone unpunished in any way, right? Like he hasn't ever had to pay a price for it. The man has won two reelections in a walk because we have been trained to not understand these kinds of abuses of power as, as negatives. We've been trained to understand them, in fact, over as strength, centuries toughness. as strengths, yeah. as what constitutes power, what constitutes authority, hard-knuckled politics. There was a guy three weeks ago in the New York Times, there was a story about how his bullying is suddenly coming under greater scrutiny. And it included the like three paragraphs of, but to be sure, he has his defenders. And those <laughs> defenders were saying things that you, I mean, I was reading them and I was like, this is this is bananas. They were saying that he's a master of brutalist political theater. What does that mean? Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? So, but that's like a real phrase that people are mm -hmm. like, well, that's something he's good at is, is brutalist well, political right. theater. So I think that's one of the things we're interested in, like in this sort of episode is like, to what extent was Cuomo operating like this in plain sight? And to what extent are these sort of new and surprising revelations? It's hard to separate the two, not just because there were sort of stories were there if you were paying close attention, which is something I wrote about. Yes. Because like there are sort of new and shocking facts, but we are also using those new and shocking facts to place these old things in proper context. So a lot of this is, it is about this concept of what power is. So does having your grip on power where people love you and you have high approval ratings, then the sense is no one can come for you. And so it actually becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. If there is the sense no one can come for you, then anybody who tries to raise their voice in criticism may in fact just hit a brick wall. And you need a moment actually in which something makes it clear that maybe that myth of effective leadership is in fact just a myth. And so uh, one of the things that's true is if I had been assigned the story in 2017, I, I could not have reported it the way that I could report it now because so many of those people would have been less willing to come forward and go on the record and tell their stories. And one of the, the things he's famous for is that if you were tried to leave his office, he would try to get your new job. He would try to get it taken away. There were things that were universal in my reporting. This is something that all of my sources said. It was famous you couldn't let anybody know who you were interviewing for because the governor's office would call. There were rumors that they would call and have your offer rescinded. They might not have valued you there. They might have been telling you every day, and this was also the experience of many people I spoke to, you're doing a terrible job. They might transfer you to a place that you didn't want to be where you basically have no ability to do anything that you care about or are good at, but they don't want you to leave. That's crazy. And because he's the governor and because actually New York's executive office has a comparatively huge amount of state power. The people who did get, these are people who went, in many cases, went to work for the governor because they cared about public policy, because they cared about government. So many of the places that they might otherwise get jobs at agencies or whether they're going into lobbying firms, those are also workplaces and careers that then wind up being dependent on the governor, where it's mm -hmm. hard to be a person who then in any way challenges or crosses the governor. So Rebecca was very evocative about 
Andrew Cuomo's executive office as a workplace and why it's taken so long for some of the problems there to be made public. We wanted to go further back in Cuomo's life and try to trace how he came to govern this way, what experiences made him into the politician and person that he is. We talked to Ross Barkin, the author of a forthcoming book about the governor. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Very excited to talk about our embattled governor, Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, embattled is is certainly right. I think people know he's the son of Mario Cuomo, but can you sketch out a little bit of his early history, what his early years were like? Andrew Cuomo is the son, obviously, of Mario Cuomo, who is a very uh, famous governor of New York. So he's born in 1957. At the time of his birth in Queens, Mario Cuomo is not yet famous and successful. He's a hardworking young lawyer, still in his 20s. And, and really, Andrew comes up with Mario in Queens as he rises through the ranks of politics. So he and, and his father have kind of an interesting relationship where he's volunteering for his father, being his body man, helping him out. But they're also not the closest. You know, Mario worked a lot. They didn't bond very much. And so Andrew is a, you know, a campaign manager of Mario's successful 1982 campaign for governor. And then he goes to Albany. And while Mario has this reputation as a philosopher king of New York, behind the scenes, you have Andrew Cuomo as this young enforcer who's calling up legislators, yelling at them, bullying them, telling them what to do. He is the the kind of dark force behind the scenes of, of Mario's governorship. And so that's kind of the first way to understand him is that he is someone who's doing a lot of the dirty work. Not that Mario was the best governor, but, you know, Mario was the campaign and poetry governor and prose guy. This was yeah. not Andrew Cuomo. There was no poetry in Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> so wh- one thing that Cuomo is famous for is this incredibly confrontational style both behind the scenes and quite publicly. Is that something that he learned from his father? Yes and no. It's not as if Mario was weak-willed. He was a sharp-elbowed politician. It's just that Andrew really takes these lessons to heart and builds an entire political career and local empire this way through fear, through intimidation, through using the levers of the state in a very expert way to inflict punishment um, on his rivals. Mario did form warm relationships with politicians, with legislators. There are people who felt a great amount of goodwill and friendship toward Mario Cuomo. There is really no one in Albany who has a great, friendly, personal relationship with Andrew Cuomo. And I believe Andrew Cuomo looked at his father's tenure as governor and concluded that his father was not successful enough because he did not intimidate his opposition, because he was not as committed to, quote, getting things done. So it's an interesting take that he sees himself as sort of correcting for what he might imagine his father's weaknesses were. Mario Cuomo is considered a fairly successful politician, but his governorship and his political career did not end the way many people expected it to. So Mario Cuomo was defeated for his fourth term in 1994 by a little-known Republican named George Pataki. This was a Republican wave year nationally, and this really did Mario Cuomo in. So 
part of the Andrew Cuomo psychology is this obsession with surpassing his father. So Andrew Cuomo now is in his third term as governor. Until the recent wave of scandals, he was all but a shoo-in for a fourth term. And there's only been one four-term governor of New York, and that's Nelson Rockefeller, who was a literal Rockefeller, one of the richest men in human history. So that is sort of the uh, terrain Andrew Cuomo wants to play on. It's also important to, to remember about Mario Cuomo is he was not a particularly accomplished governor. You know, probably the, the, the most tangible thing Mario Cuomo did as governor was build a lot of prisons. But in terms of legislative achievements, very little got done in those 12 years. And Andrew Cuomo, too, has been uh, deeply incompetent at times and corrupt. But there are tangible accomplishments he can point to in his political obituary, raising minimum wage, passing same-sex marriage, a gun control bill, rebuilding an apparently faulty Tappan Zee Bridge. I think part of him is, is trying to correct for what he saw were the flaws of the uh, Mario Cuomo rule in New York. If his father isn't necessarily the role model for accomplishing things in government or, you know, making your legacy, are there people that he was looking to? The building record, certainly, and the bullying <laughs> sounds a lot like Robert Moses. He imagines himself in the class of Robert Moses. Robert Moses, who was the, quote, master builder of, of New York for a 40-year period, wielded supreme power in New York State, remade the entire you know, infrastructure of, of the city and state in, in his image, highways, bridges, parks, beaches, did many terrible things, did some good things as well. So Andrew Cuomo, similarly, he has the power of the state at his disposal. So, so throughout his time in office, he's been looking for ways to build power uh, and especially make these grand gestures. In March 2020, New York City becomes one of the early hotspots in the coronavirus crisis. How does he use COVID to project a powerful image? Andrew Cuomo loves crises because it allows him to do press conferences. It allows him to wear the windbreaker. I remember during Hurricane Sandy, he'd go into the subway tunnels. You know, he loves these set pieces. All these kind of, you know, I don't want to call them authoritarian leaders, too strong a word, but, but people who, who kind of uh, are authoritarian curious. He is someone who's always about appearing in command. He, he cuts a strong presence in person, too. He's over six feet tall. He's very broad. He fills a room. He fills a suit. He has this deep voice, which in our sexist society this is something also we associate with power, kind of that deep masculine intonation. All these things feed into the aesthetic of Cuomo. Bill de Blasio does not project power. Andrew Cuomo, in every <laughs> sense, does. Bill is very tall, though. He's tall, but he's skinny. He's angry. <laughs> so uh, at the height of the, the first wave of COVID in New York, it's not just journalists who are really falling in love with Cuomo, but ordinary people tweeting things like, Andrew Cuomo is my boyfriend now. Uh, you know, like really... <laughs> extravagant effusions of appreciation and gratitude for this man at the same time as we are experiencing historic rates of hospitalization and death. How do you think his handling of the coronavirus crisis should be judged in retrospect? It should be judged very harshly. Let's remember New York has almost 50,000 deaths. This is the second highest death total in America, second to California, which is twice as large. So New York was very slow to shut down. The hospitals were badly overrun, badly mismanaged. You know, the public hospitals have been underfunded for a while. 
Cuomo is trying to cut Medicaid payments to public hospitals. During the pandemic, nursing homes get legal immunity and hospitals while COVID patients are being shoved into them. They're not getting the proper PPE. The argument is always that, well, he's a mean guy, but he gets things done. Well, no, he's actually both nasty and he's fairly incompetent. And New York (laughs) is not a well-run state. And COVID was a disaster. And other governors struggle with this too. I'm not saying it was just Cuomo, but Gavin Newsom and Jay Inslee and and Phil Scott weren't being put on the cover of Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair and being uh, fawned over by the, the media. One of the things we're examining is this idea of how did he get away with it for so long? And that's not just a question of how did he get away with managing a workplace in the way he managed it for so long? But, you know, how did he get away with that incompetence you talk about? What has changed to make it possible for Cuomo to suddenly be in political trouble when it seemed like he was invincible before in New York? I I think it starts with Trump being gone. There is a void that cable TV stations and prestige media must fill. And it's being filled with Cuomo. These scandals are, of course, very credible and and deserve the attention they're getting. But I don't think they would have gotten them in in a world with Trump on the stage tweeting every day. So I would say it starts there. The nursing home scandal where where for months Cuomo is hiding the true nursing home death toll. Basically, we were counting nursing home deaths in a very unusual, odd way, not counting people transferred to hospitals who died there. Politicians, journalists were going, okay, how many people actually died in nursing homes? Cuomo would not say. Finally, the state attorney general in January puts out a report that we were undercounting nursing home deaths by as much as 50%. So this puts some heat on Cuomo. And and I can imagine these women who come forward around the same time, they're probably thinking that it's hard to challenge someone who's at the height of their powers. Could Charlotte Bennett and Lindsey Boylan come out with their allegations last May in the height of COVID where Cuomo's on the cover of these magazines? You could, you might not be listened to. Sure. And not only does Trump grab headlines, but he also acts as an antagonist to Andrew Cuomo directly, directly attacking the state of New York. And you feel like that kind of gave Cuomo the ability to position himself as a white knight that was going to defend New Yorkers against Donald Trump. Yes. I mean, Donald Trump is so noxious. You cannot invent a better villain and foil than Donald J. Trump. Just, Just totally incompetent, mishandles COVID completely. And then here comes Andrew Cuomo, right? He, he is someone who is like Donald Trump in many ways. He's the son of a, of a powerful person from Queens, grew up in a similar environment, a very masculine environment, but he's also someone who does project competence. Andrew Cuomo is there with his PowerPoints and his facts and his, his nice suit, and he's speaking in this calm and direct way. And people see this and they see Donald Trump and they go, well, this is the guy. Cuomo is our guy. He's saving us. He's defending us. And it never made any sense because he's getting famous and popular. It's literally tens of thousands of people are getting sick and dying. We don't know what's going to happen by the time this episode goes live. But it seems really unlikely that Cuomo will have resigned, as most of the New York congressional delegation has urged him to do, and as the two U.S. senators from New York have urged him to do. What's his rescue plan for himself? Andrew Cuomo is going to save himself by buying himself time. Right now, the state assembly is beginning its impeachment investigation. Many of the state legislators there, unlike in the congressional delegation, are intimidated by Cuomo, 
are more conservative in their bearing and really, I think, deep down do not want to impeach Andrew Cuomo at all. So it starts with buying himself time. It's also going to hinge on the report that the attorney general puts out on these sexual harassment allegations. This report could come out in a month from now. It could come out in two months. No one really knows. And if that report confirms these allegations, if it brings new allegations to the fore, that's where you'll see someone like Joe Biden call for Andrew Cuomo to resign. Then it gets serious. And then the state assembly, which has the power to impeach, then they move forward and the vote total increases. And then he he steps aside. We're not there yet. I will say, when you were writing your book about Andrew Cuomo, I I think you and I probably both would have assumed he was going to win that fourth term, right? 100%. I did not think he was beatable. It, It felt like a foregone conclusion. Now it is not. He's a lot less popular, and prominent politicians with their own followings and their own ability to raise money could force him aside this year or next. So Ross's read on Cuomo is that his career has been a response to his father's, that he's focused on correcting for his weaknesses and wanting to surpass him. Now Cuomo is in this position of being urged in the strongest possible terms to resign. And he's not just resisting, he's trying to pass a state budget. I wanted to talk to someone with direct experience working with him, who understands how Cuomo's power works and who has seen firsthand how he wields it. So Alex spoke to Julia Salazar, a New York State Senator for the 18th District, which covers much of Brooklyn. Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash specialoffer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Thank you, Alex. Happy to be here. So uh, this was a bit tricky to schedule because this is a busy season for you right now. This is budget season in New York right now, right? Yeah, this is state budget season, which is always very hectic. The budget's due on April 1st, but it has become even more chaotic because of the news that's coming out about the governor and allegations against him. So Senator Salazar explained that at the beginning of every year, the governor and his administration prepare a draft budget. They send it to the legislature. Then both houses, the Senate and the Assembly, analyze what the governor has proposed. We hold a series of joint legislative hearings on each of the policy areas that are addressed in the budget. Everything you could possibly think impacting the lives of of New Yorkers. And we respond with two respective one-house budgets. So now, basically, we have three proposed budgets, what the Assembly wants, what the Senate wants, and what the governor wants. And then from there, three-way negotiations among the executive, the executive being the governor, the assembly and the Senate, those begin. And so that will mark really the final stretch before a budget would need to be passed in order for us to have an on-time budget. This process is usually referred to as three men in a room. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins is the leader of the state Senate who's in those negotiations. So it's no longer three men in a room per se, but it's a process that has historically been very opaque and really Mm. lacked public input and public transparency. 
Yeah, so tell me about the three men in a room, because I think that's really important. And uh, that gets to the power here. I think people have this sort of schoolhouse rock idea of how legislation passes. Like, someone proposes a bill, and then these these legislative bodies vote on it, and then it gets signed into law. But, you know, the budget process was the three men in a room thing, where the governor, who was Andrew Cuomo, was in a, a backroom deal with two other people, and they would sort of decide everything. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's been a, a lot of backroom deals. Legislators often know very little about the contents of the budget bills and what's going to be the enacted budget until you know, moments before we vote on it. We have seen in the final hours or the final day before the budget is due, the governor slipping what we would call poison pills, things that are priorities for the governor, such as you know, in 2019, it was the governor giving himself a substantial pay raise. So then if the legislature rejects the budget or they can't pass it on time, there's a government shutdown, suspension of pay for state workers. Although not the governor, interestingly enough. <laughs> <laughs> how, how you're describing it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically it's like a take it or leave it thing. The governor has all this power to be like, all right, here's what I've decided what we're going to do this year and take it or leave it. Yeah, I mean, it, we are in a much weaker negotiating position than the governor, and the only way that that's ever going to change is if there is a constitutional amendment to make sure that we're actually functioning as um, two co-equal branches in the budget process. It's funny, because right now we're describing a sort of contentious negotiation between a democratic legislature and a democratic governor. Why is this like this when theoretically everyone's on the same side? I think there's a couple things that contribute to this. One is perhaps just a fundamental flaw in the two-party system that any two Democrats, even in a state like New York, where we have a supermajority of Democrats in the Assembly, a supermajority of Democrats in the state Senate, and a ostensibly Democratic governor, any two Democrats can have vastly different political views from pretty conservative Democrats to someone like myself, who's a Democratic Socialist. And then we have a governor who, frankly, he has pretty much been an unapologetic fiscal conservative. And so he is often resistant to the types of progressive policy that the state Senate and the state assembly want to achieve. So the senator explained how Cuomo empowered Republicans to maintain political power in New York for a few years. He supported behind the scenes the creation of the Independent Democratic Conference, a caucus of Democrats in the state Senate who caucused with the Republicans and maintained a de facto majority Republican power in the state Senate for years. So this is a really important point that Senator Salazar was making, which is that in a, a, a state that is now effectively a one-party Democratic state, uh, there's all these things that we're still having trouble getting passed. And Governor Cuomo was often the reason for that, in part because for a few years there, he was allowing Republicans to maintain control over one arm of government. As a consequence, there was a lot of progressive legislation that was held up by our Democratic governor. I think part of Cuomo's sales pitch, especially when he first ran, was that Albany is dysfunctional and you need someone like him to get things done. But that was, as you say, with a Republican Senate majority. And in fact, the, the New York uh, State Senate 
is basically gerrymandered for Republicans to control it. And the fact that Democrats control it is a sign of how much politics have changed in New York over the last few years. Yeah, this session is the very first time, I think, in the in the history of the state that we have a supermajority of Democrats in, in both houses. Not the first time that we have a, a Democratic majority Senate and a Democratic majority Assembly, but rather that we have enough Democrats in each house that we could override the governor's veto. If yeah. And I, I think part of what's happening in this moment is that Andrew Cuomo was sort of engineered to operate in a different political environment. And that's why I, I bring up the 2018 election and the 2020 election. He's not necessarily suited for a world where someone like you gets elected to the state Senate and where you are not alone. Like, it's not even necessarily a matter of ideology. It's that all these people started showing up who owed no fealty to him and and didn't necessarily think that they had to respect sort of the machine that he represents. Like, it's a different atmosphere in Albany now than it was when he got there first. I came in with this class, you could say, of other legislators who also ran grassroots campaigns, who ran against the establishment, who were truly accountable to their constituents, and more importantly, not beholden to the mm -hmm. governor or to the establishment. And, and therefore, <laughs> he hasn't had the control over us or been able to intimidate us the way that he would in the past. Right. So it's, it's like the governor whose sales pitch was, I can navigate an Albany where there's all these basically literally Republican ally Democrats. Perhaps now we need one who says, like, I can get things done with a legislature that has all these, like, actually grassroots Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. And I think that, well, you know, g given what's happening right now, I'm among people who are calling on the governor to resign. And if he fails to resign for us to move forward with impeachment proceedings. But uh, re regardless, for as long as the governor is still in office, he's going to have to reckon with this growing body of legislators who are not accountable to him and are not afraid to stand up to him. Alex's conversation with the senator highlights just how out of step Cuomo is with the political environment in New York today. So we also asked Rebecca what she thought was behind Cuomo's decision, apparently, to stay in the face of such strong pressure to go away. Now that a lot of this is out, his reaction has been, I'm staying and I'm going to continue to be the governor which I think is quite unusual because if you see these kinds of allegations made against someone who is the CEO of a company or big movie producer, the reaction is usually by the point that there is this much stuff, they leave or they're forced to go. But he's elected and he can say, I'm staying. You're reporting on someone who can choose to ignore this stuff if they want. After 2017, there was this spate of powerful people many of them powerful white men who had reporting come out that led them to step away from power. Now, at a certain point, some of those people, I think, learned from the Trump playbook, which is you just don't go anywhere. And in fact, there are a lot of ways in which there are many valid comparisons between Trump's approach to power and Andrew Cuomo's approach to power. If you are, in fact, in it for the power, 
then that approach to just, well, I can just keep my power (laughs) actually (laughs) makes sense. If your concern is, can I capably steer my state forward? Can I continue to do the work that needs to be done on behalf of my constituents? Then you might get a different answer about like, what is my set of decisions here? But if in fact, the pursuit of power is the ends, then just keeping your power seems like it might work. I feel like if you, if you want to answer the question of, like, what does Andrew Cuomo want to do with his power, you really can only sort of reach to psychological explanations, which seems very sort of unsatisfactory. That's sort of what you, where yes. you end up. He wants, yes. to, he wants to name a bridge after his dad and then serve one more term than him. Because you can't point to Cuomo's project. You can't no. point to, like, what his ideal New York looks like and how he's making it happen. I think that point is so crucial. One of the ironies of Andrew Cuomo's governorship is that so much of this power playing, it's so weird, actually involved Cuomo himself creating the conditions of paralysis so that he couldn't do anything. I'm a progressive, but there's nothing I can possibly do as a progressive governor because the legislature is not in Democratic hands, so they won't pass anything progressive. And also the state budget is shrinking, so we don't have money, so we have to make cuts to all of these programs. And so the funny thing is, for all of his interest in power, part of the machinations were about keeping himself in a position of paralysis and, and like, nothing I can do here. Yeah. And so then that really does prompt this question, what did you want this job for? In some ways, if the man was just a Republican and, like, passed a conservative agenda, in some ways it would be clearer. Like, okay, yeah. so you want just regressive policies because this is your ideology. But it's not even that. I don't think there is an ideology. Somebody said to me, and this is another thing that's very Trumpian to me, is I think the only thing he believes in is Andrew Cuomo. You can read Rebecca Traster's article, Inside Andrew Cuomo's Toxic Workplace, at New York Magazine. Ross Barkin's book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York, will be published in July. Andrew Cuomo's American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, is available in bookshop remainder piles nationwide. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Kevin O'Connell is our audio engineer. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>